0: Right, well, I appreciate you coming out on this uh, cold, blustery, snowy day. You know what? It reminds me of the, uh, the first day Rock Valley Bible Church ever met here in this building. Right? Wasn't it a snowy day? Mm-hmm. That day? Whatever. December about 10 years ago. And I know Dan Scott's joining us online. And I know, Dan, you were here that first uh, day. Maybe you can comment about what you remember. Maybe you don't remember. Um, but I remember. And... Uh, so we are, we are glad that you're here this morning and just looking to hopefully encourage you, help you, challenge you in the Word of God this morning as our text is Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 16. I want to talk this morning about uh, nostalgia a little bit. Nostalgia is an interesting word. David, you used nostalgia last night. Um, just kind of, I, I haven't, didn't know David you knew that word or not, but that was that was really good. Um, nostalgia like like what is it what's nostalgia it's like that that good feeling you get right when you remember things of old and how they how they used to be um, kind of it's it's, it's very feelings kind of oriented and just kind of it, it, it feels really good and it might be a personal nostalgia like uh, about nostalgic when we were children and how simple everything was and how all was was well or maybe you get nostalgic about some season in your life that was uh, particularly fun and enjoyable and engaging. Maybe it was your, your high school years and, and how enjoyable they were and how you had a bunch of friends and you were all together in your neighborhood and at school in all your classes and it was a, an enjoyable time. The future all before you, the, the hope, the anticipation. Maybe that's what you're nostalgic about. Sometimes we get nostalgic about various seasons of the year, like I think about Christmas time. Uh, right it comes in in november right after thanksgiving and maybe you start hearing some of the the songs in the stores and the the christmas songs and the the lights that come up and and you taste some of the christmas cookies and all sorts of memories come flooding into your mind and and maybe it draws you back to remember the christmas times of old those days when grandma and grandpa were still around and uh, you were all there at grandma and grandpa's house um, tasting the noodles that grandma was famous for and her or blueberry pie, perhaps something I, I don't know. Just a nostalgia about that. We, we we get nostalgic for the good old days when, when stores were closed on Sundays, right? And the question wasn't, "Do you go to church?" But the question was, "Where do you go to church?" Uh, when gas prices were less than a dollar and a gallon, right? We're nostalgic. Oh, those were the days. I wish it was like that. Or when prayer was said in schools. Or or when nobody knew about COVID nineteen. How's that for nostalgia? Remember that? We used to get together in big stadiums and cheer on our crowds, and this social distancing thing was a was uh, not even understood at all. Oh, for those good old days, right? Well, when it comes to the Bible, right, we can often have nostalgia when thinking about the Bible. And, and I've heard it so often. Like people talk about the early church. The early church, oh, that our church would be just like the early church. And it's almost as if Christians are are, are nostalgic about that, like like longing for the good times when everything was well with the church and all was right. Well, after preaching through the first four chapters in the book of Acts, it's understandable because so far it's been good. Actually, it's been very good in the book of Acts. In in chapter 1, Jesus rose was risen from the dead and the disciples saw him and talked with him and his resurrection was a demonstrated that he conquered death but not only for him but for us all as well in chapter two we see jesus making good on his promise to build his church as he sent his helper the holy spirit came among us not leaving us as orphans but but being among us until the end of the age and thousands were coming into the church the preaching of peter in acts chapter three we saw the power Of the Lord in healing the lame man who for forty years had never walked before, but when Peter commanded him in the name of Jesus Christ to get up, he not only got up and walked, but he went leaping and praising God. And that event only served to to serve more growth in the church. In in Acts four, we see the numbers of church growth past five thousand people, five thousand men, not counting women and children. So there'll be many. and And even though the apostles faced a setback in chapter four, being brought into the religious authority. Um, the way they handled it serves us in order only to give us a greater view of the church. See, the apostles didn't back down, but they stood boldly and courage before the Sanhedrin, and, and, and Jesus and Peter even boldly proclaimed, "says We cannot stop speaking of everything that we have seen and heard." It was the religious leaders that backed down, and, and the prayer was so marvelous everyone's worshiping together. The place, when they say where it was shaken, and they're experiencing Christian community that we can only hope to experience with great unity and great power and great grace and great generosity, there was not even a single needy person among them. And we can wish, oh, if only we lived in those days of the early church, right? The days right after the resurrection, when, when revival and real miracles were taking place in the life of the church, where the church was living in closeness, unlike anything we have ever seen. And I just encourage you, it's only right to look back on the early church in those ways. But... In our text this morning, beginning of chapter 5, it's all going to change. It's going to change with one word. Chapter 5 and verse 1 begins with this word, but. But, that's that's in contrast to the previous section that that speaks of the generosity of those in the church. Not a needy person among them because people are selling houses and land and property in our day and age, right? Maybe boats and cars and cabins and anything just to meet those who had pressing needs. And case in point was Barnabas. His name, real name was Joseph. He was nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles. He, verse 37, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I mean, how much better can it get people in the church having needs, people selling their possessions to meet those needs? And then we get the butt. And the pristine early church encounters sin for the very first time. My message this morning is entitled, Sin in the Early Church, because that's what we see. We see sin in the early church. Let let me just read our passage for us this morning. Acts 5, beginning of verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husbands are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And we'll get to 12 and following a little bit later, but here we see the story the first time that sin comes into the church. The sin comes in in various forms. Right? There's, there's uh, hypocrisy and there's greed. But fundamentally it's about deceit. It's about lying. Right? And, and it all serves a, a reminder to us again, right? The early church wasn't this idyllic sort of place that we, we like to think about. Right? Everything was not well with the early church. Mo, oh, much was. So the Spirit of the Lord was really moving on people, but not all of it was. Which, again, a reminder, as the book of Acts, we go through it. We've got to understand it's descriptive and not prescriptive. That, that is, Acts wasn't written to guide us in our church today as much as it is to understand what the church was like in the early days. Because it's written for us to understand the history of the church, warts and all. We get to see the good and we get to see the bad. Peter doesn't hide the bad from us. There are times... When we want to imitate the example of the early church, right? But but not always. And and chapter five comes into that not always category. This is just the beginning. However, in in chapter six we're going to see strife in the early church. In chapter eight we're going to see those who had believed even trying to purchase the Holy Spirit with money. In Acts chapter fifteen we're going to see doctrinal divisions. We're going to see sharp divisions and disagreements among people of the church, the leaders of the church, which affects the unity of the church going forward. And furthermore, when you read Paul's letters, you, you read about these churches. It, it, almost every single letter he writes mentions all the problems and difficulties and hardships and sin that threatens the church. So, so this morning, as we see the entrance of, the, of sin into the church, just know this, it's not going to be the last time sin comes into the church. In fact, it's more the norm. Well, my first point this morning is this, sin committed. We see this in the first two verses. See, uh, a married couple had seen the examples of, uh, of many people coming with gifts to the apostles, uh, giving these gifts to the apostles, laying it at their feet, and seeing the apostles then distribute these gifts to many people. And uh, Ananias and Phyra, this, this couple, had property they could sell, and, and so they sold it. And like Barnabas, they laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 2 tells us that but they just didn't give it all they, they kept some for themselves that's what verse two says and with a wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds it says in verse one that he uh, brought some of the, the proceeds only part of it and laid it at the apostles feet as you think about this act really there's there's nothing wrong with this in, inherently it doesn't seem like that anyway. I mean, from the standpoint of the congregation, I mean, could you imagine you're sitting out there and you've seen Barnabas come and sell his property and he, he comes and he brings the property right up to the apostles' feet and then he, he goes away and then maybe then another week Ananias and Sapphira come and they give a large amount of money laying it at the apostles' feet and they, they go away. You would never be able to tell the difference. You would not know at all. They both sold property with large sum at the apostles' feet. But there's a vast difference between what Barnabas did in chapter 4 and what Ananias did in chapter 5. And the the difference has to do with appearance. And it has to do with the lying and the deceit that led to that appearance. In fact, the lying is what Peter points out in verse 3. Look here. Peter said to Ananias, said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of The land. This is our our second point this morning. We're going to spend most of our time. It's sin confronted with Peter confronting Ananias about his sin. He basically says this. Why did you lie? Why did you lie? Now, how exactly Peter knew this is a mystery to the text. We don't know exactly how it is that he he knew that only a partial um, gift was given and only Peter somehow knew that it was this plan to present this partial gift as the whole. But but he said, why, why did you do this? And then verse 4 really explains this lie. He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed of your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, before we actually dig into the content of Peter's confrontation, I just want you to notice Peter's confrontation to Ananias here. He did so by way of questions. In fact, in verses 3 and 4, he asks four questions. Why did you keep back part for yourself? Verse 3. Wasn't the land yours before you sold it? Verse 4. Wasn't the money yours before you gave it? Verse 4. Why did you think about doing such a thing? Verse 4. And by way of application, I just encourage you, when the occasion comes, and it should come, by the way, when you need to confront another believer or another person, maybe even a non-believer. Right? When you confront someone, questions is often a good way to go. Rather than just, just accusing them right off, Right? questions help people to search in their own hearts. Just cause them even to think about the reality. And, and you arouse the Holy Spirit really to work and to lead them to repentance. Rather than defense, you're going to accuse me, you're going to fight right away. You ask questions, you show that you're on their side. And that's exactly what Peter does. Is he lets the holy spirit exposed sin um in their lives and he's asking them some penetrating question and these four questions are designed to get the heart of ananias's sin he begins by affirming that the sin wasn't in giving only a portion of the proceeds he affirmed that ananias had the right to keep the land further he he said once it was sold the money was his he was under no obligation to give all the proceeds to the church but here's the sin as we see later as we Uh, Get to Sapphira is that he gave only part of the proceeds under the pretense that he gave the whole He gave part While saying it was the whole And that was the deceit that was the lie and that was the sin And and peter then points out how bad the sin is This isn't merely a sin against peter It's not a sin against others in the congregation It's not a, a sin against the thousands of people right it's a sin against god himself and that's what he says at the end of verse four it says you've not lied to men but to god not to men but to god now you look at that and you say well of course ananias lied to men he brought the money in front of everybody from the sale of the land he gave it to the apostles pretending it was the whole price to the apostles and those were men of course, he lied to men, but Peter says you have not lied to men, but to God. And and what Peter's saying here, he's emphasizing the difference between men and God, and just just uh, exalting his sin and showing it—maybe not exalting, lifting it up and showing him how bad this sin is. For for the sake of emphasis, I want to want to show you how bad this sin is. The sin of deceit is against the Lord. Like people don't even compare compared to your sin against the Lord. I'm reminded of David's confession, Psalm fifty-one. After his adultery with Bathsheba, after his his murder of Uriah, attempted cover up, when, when he came to repentance, when uh, when when Nathan came and told him the story, another good way of confronting, told him the story: of the farmer had this sheep, and and yet the king had all these sheep, and yet the king went and grabbed that one sheep, and David was irate at that at that farmer, and Nathan said, "You're the man," and he was broken in his sin. And he says in his prayer to God, Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, of course, David sinned against Uriah. Of course, he sinned against Bathsheba. He destroyed their lives. But the enormity of his sin in David's heart felt, felt so much that it was only against the Lord. And really, if we would understand our sin, we would see that that is true in our lives as well. That as, as we sin, certainly we hurt others and, and we harm others. But but it's the sin against the Lord which is the ultimate harm and the ultimate hurt. And that hurts far more than we can imagine in our lives. We, we just think it's horizontal. We just think, oh, maybe we can get away with it. You don't get away with sin because our sin is against the Lord. And, and at its core, rebellion is against the Lord. And that's what Peter's pointing out. You've not lied to men but you've lied to god in other words right there's there's more going on here in ananias's sin that then meets the eye it's it's against the lord it's not merely against people but but we also see something else going on look closely at verse three it says this ananias why has satan filled your heart to lie to the holy spirit keep back part of the proceeds in your land we see satanic involvement here and it only makes sense right The, the church is going well Right? And when the church goes well, Satan's heart rages. He hates it. And what better way to destroy the church than to bring sin into the church? In chapter 4, we saw attacks coming from outside. We saw the, the religious leaders, those who didn't believe, who came and attacked the apostles for preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead and preaching in Jesus the saving message, right? That, that he died and he rose so that we might be forgiven if we but believe in him. And so Satan works from, from within at this point now trying to incite some of the members to lie because the out attack didn't work because the church just flourished stronger so he goes inside and gets in the camp if you will a rat or a worm or whatever they're called this they they get inside and that's exactly what happened in fact that's is how satan often works from the very first sin in the bible It was the lies of Satan that tempted Eve to take the fruit. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And right here we see Satan doing what Satan does. Tempting Ananias as a fire with lies. Can you just imagine Satan whispering in her ear. It's okay. To just pay some of the price of the property. Nobody will know. Nobody will care. You'd be better off. I mean People. People will see you as generous. You'll have extra money in your pocket. And who knows? The apostles might give you a nickname. The generous duo you might be called. How does that sound, Ananias? How does that sound, Sapphira? And that whispering voice in their ear is the sort of lies that Satan loves to tell. You'll be better off in your sin. That's what we're told. That's what we think. But listen, church family, it's a lie. You're never better in your sin. You're never better in your sin because all sin is rebellion against God and you will regret your sin. Come if you're old and have sinned and you regret your sin. David in Psalm 25 said, remember, remember not the sins of my youth. He remembered his sins. He just said, God, just please don't remember them. You came to, you'll come to regret your sin and Ananias certainly regretted his sin, don't you think, Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. I think he regretted sin. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you fall down instantly. But this is the cost of sin. Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death. It's only God's mercy that stops him from striking us dead at this moment. Your every breath is a gift of God, okay? So let's let's all breathe together, right? I like my mask as my temporary mask, right? Breathing out. It's all God's It's all God's grace that we breathe again. Job thirty four says, Well, if God would determine to do so, he could take back his spirit in his breath and you would be dust in a moment. If God would determine to do so. But he lets us go. He lets us breathe. He lets us live and all comes to us by Jesus. That's why we need to believe in him. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's through Jesus who gives us the mercy to take another breath. And if anything, the story today of Ananias' Sapphira teaches us, it's this, is it that our sin is serious. It calls for our death. And Jesus is the only one who can save us from the death because our wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and that salvation is freely offered through faith in Him. So believe in Him and trust in Him that you might not face the same fate that Ananias did, who fell down dead. Now, we don't know what caused the death of Ananias. Maybe it was a heart attack. Maybe it was the, the shock of hearing, Oh, He knows! Maybe it's a conviction of sin that so overwhelmed him that put him to death. Maybe it's God miraculously striking him dead. We don't know because there was no autopsy. There's just a quick burial. Verse six: the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That was the, cult, the the culture of the day, and the climate was such that the climate was such that the, the corruption of the body decay and stent sets in quickly there's no governmental um, regulations it requires a coroner to come and verify the death of the body right you just these young men simply took him out buried dug a hole and buried him in the hole and three hours later they were done and so they were back and three hours later sapphira comes up and shows up again this is the wife so verse seven after an interval of about three hours his wife came in not knowing what had happened and here we see Peter confronting Sapphira, just like he confronted Ananias, again, using questions. And the first question has to do with the facts of the case. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. I and mean, he didn't just straight out accuse her. He, he, he gave her the opportunity to, to think about it, be convinced in the heart, and, and repent. And, and maybe Peter just showed her the money that Ananias had laid at his feet. So maybe he said, this, see this bag here? This is what Ananias gave me. Is this this the whole price of your property? Or maybe it was already counted in the back room with the accountants and and maybe he just had a number of the shekels that he had received from Ananias. We don't exactly know, but Sapphira tells a bold-faced lie. Verse 8, she said, Yes, for so much. And this was all according to their agreement. Verse 2 tells us of this plan that Sapphira and Ananias had. It tells us that Sapphira's full knowledge, she had that the so they kept back for himself some of the proceeds they'd planned it all out right, in modern terms right they had this land and they were talking about things and they said well there's a it's worth $50,000 we can sell it for that and let's give the church $30,000 and let's just say that that it was the full price that was their plan and so when uh, peter comes and confronts says i got $30,000 here is this the price That was the plan she kept to the plan for all she knew Ananias was in the other room waiting for her and she didn't want to uh, expose her husband as a liar. So she said yes for so much In that moment she was exposed as a liar as well. And then Peter comes with a confrontation in verse nine. It's about as hard as it comes. But again, it's in the form of a question. Peter said to her, how is it you've agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Now, before we get to that confrontation, let's just make a theological remark here. Notice how Peter views the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, Ananias and Sapphira are testing the Spirit of the Lord. In in verse 4, Peter considers their lie a lie against God. In verse 3, Peter considers their lie against the Holy Spirit. So, a lie against God, a lie against the Holy Spirit. I mean, the only conclusion you can is that God and the Holy Spirit are one. Their there's some who say the Holy Spirit's a force, but you can't lie to a force. It doesn't work. You try lying to gravity. You can't lie to gravity, but you can lie to a person. God and the Holy Spirit are one. It's an instance in the New Testament that just infers and teaches the Trinity. So I digress. But Peter said to her, verse 9, How is it that you've agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord? In other words, how is it that you even thought this was a good plan? Like... You, you talk together about these things and you you came up with this idea, this premeditated sin, right? You, you thought it through. How how did you think this was a good plan? Even once you think about this, how is it that they thought it was a good plan? Like what 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 were they trying to accomplish? And and I think one of the biggest things they're trying to accomplish was how they might be esteemed by others. I mean, I, I really think this is probably at the heart. The reason they lied is because they wanted to be esteemed by others and thought better of by others. Maybe they saw in the service, when, when the offerings were presented and when the apostles were standing there and people were coming and laying down their, their treasures at the apostles' feet, they would gather and find out the need and then be able to distribute them to those who have need. Maybe they saw how people responded to those who were really generous and brought large sums of money. Maybe they saw Joseph Barnabas... Like maybe they saw Barnabas and just said, Wow, look at how high people speak about him. They speak well about him. And I'm sure maybe they said that, that if we give this money as well, think about how people will think about us as well. Like we'll be seen as these generous people. So they came forward, and I suspect hoping for some praise of men. But that's a bad plan. Remember what Jesus said about giving? He said, Matthew chapter six, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. Bears actually upon this text. And Jesus said this, thus, when you give to the needy sound, no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And I think that's exactly the issue of Ananias and Sapphira. They were hypocrites. They wanted others to see them, that they might receive the praise from everybody. I mean, why else would you lie about giving some and, and, and not giving all? But, but trying on that, that extra to be a, a hypocrite, to put more, put forth a better foot than really you You put forth at all. And Jesus said, they've received the reward. They're hypocrites. They were found out. They were exposed. Which, by the way, I'm not sure if you ever thought about this, but the whole practice of laying these treasures at the apostles' feet, doesn't that just cultivate this attitude of what Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount about parading your righteousness before other people? And and though it, it certainly, I don't think that Barnabas sinned in bringing his sum of money, it, it does allude, does help and aid this whole practice of hypocrisy. So don't expect anytime soon to have the offering box actually be an offering bucket where at the end of the service I'm going to say, why don't you come and why don't you give your money? I think that's a, a case. where that's where the disciples did it. Apostles did it. descriptive. I don't think it's prescriptive. In fact, I think perhaps it's unwise in our day and age to do things like they did. Maybe back then there was okay. But there certainly was this temptation, this temptation to be a hypocrite. Hypocrisy. You think there's hypocrisy in the church today? I think so. I think there's hypocrisy in the church. And Jesus, when dealing with hypocrisy, hated it. All you got to do is a whole chapter of the Bible, Matthew chapter 23, is devoted to hypocrisy. Showing up on Sunday morning is one thing, and yet really being something else at home. And your kids see right through that. If you think you can hide your hypocrisy from your kids, your kids will totally see that. It can't be done. You say, so, okay, so, so what, what, what's the cure for hypocrisy, right? Because all of us have an element of that. And, and all of us, right, we, we fail to live as high as we say or we fail to live as high as we want. What's the, what's the solution to hypocrisy? It's confession. Confessing your sin. Right? Because we all sin. It's not denying that. But hypocrisy is when we, we pretend to be higher than we really are. But if you confess and say that, that I know this is where I really want to be, but I'm not there, but here's where I am, and I have failed, and I have sinned. That a hypocr- confession just removes the accusation of hypocrisy. And that's really what Sapphira could have done here. When Peter asked about the price she sold for she could have come clean. She could have said, uh, no, that's not um, I sinned in that we pretended that that was the price, but that wasn't the price and it all would have come clean. But instead she, she maintained her hypocrisy and her lying and Peter pronounces judgment. Having seen Ananias drop dead, he prophesies the same thing for Sapphira. Now, how he knew this, I have no idea. Uh, I, I think when Ananias fell over he just, he, he fell over. And Peter was probably somewhat shocked, verse 9. When Ananias hear these words, he fell down and breathed his last. But here, Peter's prophesying. And I think it gets a, a hint into the <coughs> miraculous nature of the early church in those days. Peter said this. He said, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And, verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her with her husband. And then we see the same response. Verse 11, the response of fear. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It was the the same, same response after Ananias. Verse 5, when he heard these things, he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And this is a good thing. It's good to have this healthy fear. This fear of, wow, we we better make sure that we walk righteously before the Lord because the Lord is is there and ready to pounce. Julie, my my last point here this morning begins with verse 11. It's simply called sin conquered. Sin was committed, verses 1 and 2, and is confronted. And now I'm calling it sin conquered. Not in the sense that Ananias and Sapphira conquered the sin themselves but in the sense that Peter and the church dealt well with the sin. And so here even we can look back, nostalgia-like, at the early church, that when there was sin, the church dealt with the sin in the right way. It was not allowed to fester. Sin was not allowed to have its free reign. Rather, it was checked. and The people came to understand the gravity of sin in their lives, the devastation it might bring to the church. And that's why this great fear here in verse 11 is a good thing, right? It, it keeps us on the path of God. When, when you have the fear of the Lord in your mind, it helps keep you on the right way. We learned from Proverbs, right, a year ago when we were there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Fearing God is what helps keep you on the right way. This is the beginning of wisdom to fear God, keep his commandments, follow after him, keeps us on his path. Israel, what does the Lord require of you? If you're memorizing the fighter verses. But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. Right? That is the fear of God. Is to to walk in his ways. Now when I think about the story of Anastasia's fire. Stepping back a little bit. I think of of a couple Old Testament stories. First is the story of Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus chapter 10. These were the the first priests who were assigned really to offer up sacrifices uh, for Israel. After, After the law was given... And after everything was all set in place, you saw the the beginning of what sacrifices were like. And I suppose they probably sacrificed some things. But then it says in Leviticus chapter 10 that they offered up unauthorized fire before the Lord. That is strange fire. That is a fire different than what the Lord commanded them. And fire then came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Here you had religious people. These were the priests after all. Aaron's sons offering up their sacrifice to the Lord, but they were doing so in a cavalier manner. And God struck them down right then and there. And Moses then said to Aaron after they died, he said, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And there you just see the the call to honor the Lord, right? To fear the Lord and to honor him. Is right there. The story of Nadab and Abihu. The second story that comes to my mind is that of, uh, of Achan. Achan had, had sinned in the fact that he was coveting, a little bit like Ananias and Sapphira, keeping back some of, of, of the proceeds, right? You remember Joshua in jericho in joshua chapter six they they enter into the land and they enter into this jericho and they they march around it right every day and then they march around it seven times a day and the walls fall down and they conquer everything but joshua had said don't take anything under the band don't take any of the gold like don't take any of the precious jewels and achan saw it and he did and he hid it away because he was covered with greed and then even deceiving about it. Who, who did this? And everyone was quiet. And then eventually they came down and, and found him out. And they stoned him and burned him and his family for their for their sin. Now, what's, what's, what's interesting about this, and then after that, then what happened? In Joshua chapter 8, then they go and they conquer Ai. And they conquer the rest of the land. Or, or what happens after Leviticus chapter 10? Right, the people are living in peace, and they're offering up sacrifices rightly. And I think about how both these stories of Nadab and Abihu and of Achan both come, come in time of, of great victory and great conquering. The one was just right after giving the law to Nadab and Abihu. The other was right after conquering Joshua. It's like the early church, right after things are going well. Right? There, there's great instruction, and God is doing great things. It's right then when God is doing great things that sin comes in the church. And people had to be dealt with it and pay the price. Nadab and Abihu were carried away. Nadab and Eleazar and Ithamar, their substitutes, were instructed in the right way, and they did. As Achan and his family were stoned and burned, Israel then continued in the right ways of the Lord. And they conquered the land, and they proceeded well. And that's exactly what we see in verses 11 through 16. We see the church continuing on in the ways of the Lord, experiencing great blessings of the Lord. Look at verse 12. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted, those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they all were healed. And I think this takes us back to chapter 4. This takes us back to the, the great things the church is doing, the, the great power. And I, I think that's where it's like like Achan. Right. Once Achan was dealt with, once sin was in the camp and that was dealt with and, and his family was, was done, then they went and they conquered and they conquered the land. And so likewise here, we just see these wonderful things that are done. We see miracles in verse 12 and, and you got to catch these miracles in the backdrop. But there was sin and it was attempting it potentially would derail the church. But it didn't. Many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. I mean, we just have one, like the healing of the, the lame man who's walking and leaping and praising God. And here, they are just, they're just many. And I suspect that you can look at the pattern of these. Just look at the pattern of life of Jesus if you want to see what sort of miracles are being done. Other lame people perhaps walking, blind people perhaps seeing, deaf people became hearing, right? Those, those with demons, right? Demons being cast out and being restored. I think that's the sort of thing that was happening here. And there's unity as well. If you look there in verse 13, they're gathered together in Solomon's portico. They, they didn't leave. Remember, that's where they were. That's where Solomon was preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, where he was arrested right, and, and brought, um, Peter was in, in Acts chapter 4, brought before the Sanhedrin. And they, just like, they stayed there just right in the temple. They were, they were comfortable there, boldly defying uh, the commandment of the, the Sanhedrin. And, and in verse four, you see this rep, or thirteen rather. You see this reputation that they have. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's like, well, I don't want to join them, but I respect them. I, I don't want to join them because of my sin. I might die on the spot. I don't want any part of that. But they have great respect. It's a little bit like uh, persecution in the Soviet Union. I read for you a couple of weeks ago about how the Christians in the Soviet Union were severely oppressed and, and prohibited from education and prohibited from advancement in their jobs, and they did the meaningful task, uh, meaningless tasks. And yet, however, though, they were respected because they were working hard, because they labored for the Lord and not for men. And so there was this esteem, but people didn't want to become a Christian because of the cost of that, but they esteemed them as honest, hardworking people. And then we see here, uh, just, just more and more um, expanse and growth. <clears throat> Verse fourteen, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. Here, just more than ever. It's like, like just more. Like, and, and we thought there was a lot in uh, Day of Pentecost, three thousand and a couple thousand more. But just more than ever. Just people were coming and coming and coming in this time of revival. And then we see miracles coming more and more. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cotton mat, cots and mats. So, so that, right, they're just right there. So Peter might just happen to go by. A shadow might fall on them. And what was the effect of the shadow falling upon them? Healing. And they're being made well. I mean, that, that is incredible. This is Jesus-style ministry and healing that was taking place among the apostles. And, and even in verse 16, the people gathered from the towns and Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Someone had an unclean spirit, they were being healed because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and I just say this, here's, here's a lesson here, is that sin was conquered, and, 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 and sin can't stop God's power. Sin can't stop God's progress in His church. So in the sin at Rock Valley Bible Church, just know that, that, that God can't be deterred by sin. If we deal with it rightly and appropriately, God in His grace will help us and will grow His church in His time and His way. So sin in the early church, let's be nostalgic. Let's think about what the early church was like. Not in the sense that everything was right, but in their wrongs, how they dealt with it rightly here in Acts chapter 5. Such an encouragement for us all. Is it not? Let's pray. Father, I would pray that God, we might think fondly of the early church. God, I might think of the, the power of the Spirit in the early church to to work wonderfully well, to have Peter be given this power of discernment. God, how how that was, I, I don't know. God, but he discerned what was in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And and, and great fear came upon the people because they stood before you and um, sin was not tolerated. Thank you for the courage of the apostles here. And, and Lord, I would pray for us that we would have similar courage, that we would walk before the fear of the Lord in a, in a right way as well. And it's these miracles, these Jesus-style miracles were done which I've, I've never seen, God, but were happening back then. God, Lord, I pray, we trust you have the power to heal. let even think about Andy Krause and his struggles, his diagnosis of cancer, and you have the power to heal that. God, and yet you have your plan and your ways and we will submit our ways to you. But we long to see, oh God, you work among us in great and even miraculous ways like you did here. Just even with all the people with unclean spirit all being healed. God, how your church is triumphant, how Acts is a triumphant book. And so help us, oh Lord, to see and taste those triumphant times in our days. That we might see all the good of the early church in these days at Rock Valley Bible Church. God, but it only comes from your hand. It is, it is your spirit, and it is your working, and so we, we just plead. We're, we're saying that we aren't deserving of this at all, God, but it's only by your grace this blessing would ever come, and we, we long, oh God, as a fruit of the result of the preaching through Acts, to experience, God, just the presence of the Spirit in our lives, that you would add to our numbers, that we would see people day by day being saved. So help us to be your witnesses Help us to proclaim your word as we trust, God, just, just in your ways, walking in the fear of you, God, that we might love you and serve you all of our days. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, days of uh, COVID 19 don't have a lot going on in the church, um, but would encourage you to get on the phone, right? get on Zoom, talk to people, encourage them, whatever you can. Uh, serve the people with needs, their needs at the church. Find out what those needs. You, you've seen needs with uh, emails. Find them out. Search them out. Encourage people. Call them. Do what you can to be part of a community. Even though we can't maybe meet together, uh, we can do that um, through technology. It's wonderful. So, You're dismissed. Have a great day. And uh, I will talk with the kids up front right here. Come on up.